Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It's a blessed thing to know our position before a Lord who is full of truth and grace, perfectly balanced in truth and grace. Well, we continue on. Oh, I'm supposed to, yes. Mothers, you will have a little gift as you leave uh, on the table. Make sure you get one of those as you go out. I do my, all right, I'm good. We continue on with our sermon series this morning. Adventures in Acts. Can it happen again? Can we set the world on fire? Can we turn the world upside down like they did in the book of Acts? In the book of Acts, we learn to deal with conflict and conflict resolution between each other. We learn how to be consistent and loving and kind. We learn how to evangelize the world. We learn how to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. Last week, we talked about modern idols. Uh, We uh, spent some time in Acts 17. We looked at the port city of Thessalonica and Polytarchus, the word that everybody thought that maybe Paul, or excuse me, Luke had made up, uh, come to find out that it really was a word, and we found that uh, in a carving, an emblem on uh, the city gate. And we also talked about Berea and that they were noble, more noble than the people in Philippi. That wouldn't be hard to say in a place that stripped you down and beat you, would it? But they were more noble Christians there because they were open-minded. But as they were open-minded and listened to Paul and everything he had to say and accepted it, they also compared it against Scripture to make sure it was correct. And we looked at Athens, the sermon on the living God and the objects maybe of our worship in today, 2017. Well, today we look at flexibility and persistence. Flexibility and persistence. Well, I promised you each week that we'll do a little bit of geography and a little bit of history, so we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 18 and 19. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the back uh, on a table. We want you to open up Your Bible, we want you to take notes to highlight. We want you to take notes on the little handout, the incomplete outline. We want you to be involved in this sermon series. And last week, somebody came up to me and said, Hey, Keith, the print and those Bibles are really small, and I can't use that. And I said, No problem, and now we have large print Bibles at the back. So if you're like me and your eyesight's starting to fail, and you need a large print Bible to study along with us, we have one back there. Make it your own and get involved in the Word of God. Well, a little bit of geography this morning, really a whole lot of geography this morning. We're in Corinth. Corinth is just just down and over from Athens where we were last week, Uh, and, and then we will be in Ephesus. A little bit about Corinth. You see the red dot, follow the red dot as we zoom in on that red dot, Corinth sits on the isthmus. Now, the isthmus, if you look up the word isthmus, it will tell you that it's a small section of island between two larger sections of island. Uh, But really, isthmus was a town. This town that was located right here was named isthmus. But because It was the first isthmus, now we call all small little sections of land between two large bodies separated by water, we call them isthmus. But this was the original isthmus. Now, as you can see, it's only a small distance 
from the Adriatic Sea and the Aegean Sea right here across this isthmus. It's only 3.69 miles. Everybody says four miles, but really it's 3.69 because Google says it is. <laughs> and I measured it. So this is a great way for sailors to avoid a very hazardous place on the bottom of the Polynesian area of Greece. That's a terrible place to travel. And if you cut through this section of land, you will save 375 miles of sailing. And all that sailing is dangerous sailing. You'll go from this one little bay over into the Corinth Bay and then out into the Adriatic Sea. It cut months of sailing off of the sailor's time. But there's this problem, this section of land. So what they did was they decided to build a causeway across it. They call it the Dielkos. And what they did in ancient time was they built this causeway made out of limestone and marble, very hard. And then they would draw these ships up, and they would unload the ships completely. All their cargo they would take off. Then they would take these huge caspins, these, these, anchor, or these uh, cranes, and they would pull up the ship, they would turn them sideways so they were facing the right way, completely unloaded. They would take them and put them on these small ferries. Now, they couldn't do this with all the boats, but if the boat was somewhere between 70 and 50 feet, they could do this, and they would put these unloaded boats on these little ferries, and then with human power, they would drag them across this three, four miles it was actually close to five miles. The, the causeway kind of went back and forth and avoided going up and down. And if you were one of these guys pulling the boat, I imagine the downhill was more scary than the uphill was, right? This was quite an ingenious feat for, for these men to do this. And this happened early on in the Egyptian history, or excuse me, in the Greek history. This is the Dielkos causeway still there today now at the beginning of this causeway they built the grooves and matter of fact the grooves stood up just a little bit so when they put the ship on that they wouldn't sway sway one way or the other and they would get off to a good start but the rest of the road in the middle was flat but it's not now it has these grooves which gives you an understanding of how heavy and how many times that they drug ships and cargo across this limestone and across these marble rocks, this road, from one side to another. Well, as you can imagine, just like a good restaurant, what's important to a city? Location, location, location. And that's really what made Corinth important in the Greek world. Well, a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was two cities with a death in the middle. Somewhere around 700 uh, B.C., they founded Corinth, the Greeks did. But then in about 146 B.C., Rome is starting to stretch out and starting to expand its borders. And so the Greeks on the Polyponnesian island there, they decide that they're, they're going to fight Rome. It was really a bad, bad decision. Because Rome 
came up with 23,000 soldiers, 3,500 of them on horseback, and they decimated the Greek army at that time. Not only did they decimate the army, but they slaughtered any man who was of fighting age, and then they took the children, the women and the children, and they sold them into slavery. And then they came back and they plundered the city of Corinth. They took everything, put it on a boat, sent it back to Rome. And then they burned Corinth to the ground. So for 102 years, Corinth sat as a desolated city, hardly any inhabitants. And then because of location, 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 and they wanted commerce to start back up, and they saw this as an important place, Julius Caesar in 44 B.C., gives a command just before he is assassinated to rebuild Corinth. And they do. And they rebuild Corinth bigger and better than it ever has been. But Corinth has always been known for its moral corruption. As you might imagine, it's a get-rich-quick city. It only really has one claim to fame, and that's the seaports on either side. And the business that goes on between them. If you get a whole lot of sailors with nothing to do and a whole lot of money to spend it, you can imagine where they'll go. And that's what they did. Plato calls Corinthian girls, that became known as a prostitute. So instead of saying a lady of the night, in Greek times you would just say, well, she's a Corinthian girl. Strabo tells us, that the temple of Aphrodite owned more than a thousand temple slaves and prostitutes. Ship captains squandered their money, and hence the proverb, not for every, every man is the voyage to Corinth, meaning not every man wants to live in this type of debauchery. Okay, And this became a proverb that was known after Corinth. Uh, Aristophanes coined a word, and I'm almost afraid to, decide to pronounce it, Corinth, Corinthiathus, I'm not even going to try. There it is. You see it. It means to live like a Corinthian. And it was known throughout all of Greece, if you used this word, you were talking about living a drunken and immoral state of debauchery. And it, it really means to live like a Corinthian. And everyone understood that. Well, that makes some of our scripture easier to understand when we understand the Corinthian way of life, right? When Paul writes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 7-11, he says, Well, some of you defraud, some of you do wrong to each other. You're fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, infeminate, homosexual, thieves, covetous, drunken, revelers, you're swindlers, you're frauds. And some of you were just this way. Some of you were like this until you met the Lord Jesus Christ and were washed, right? Until you were cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So now when you read that scripture, you understand what kind of environment and culture that Paul was speaking to. So what's up with all the tent makers? First thing you're going to notice as you open up the scripture to verse 18 is that Paul and Priscilla and Aquila instantly get to Corinth and they set up business as tent makers. Well, the Ithian games 
or in Ithmus, right? Try to say that 10 times fast. The Ithmian Games were only second to the Olympics. They pulled in a huge crowd. And while we have found where the stadiums are, while we see where the Roman temples were for their god and goddesses there in Ithmus, we can't find any place for dormitories or bunkhouses. None. You would think with all these hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of athletes, that there would be some bunkhouses and dormitories to keep them. Well, the well-educated and the scholarly opinion is that they lived in elaborate tent cities. Every two years, they would have these games. And every two years, all the athletes would live in these huge tent cities that were taken up and and put down every two years. So this is probably why that Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla set up shops so quickly in Corinth. There was probably a huge demand for tent makers. All right, we have one scripture, verse 12 in your Bible there, that uh, Galio, Galio, I'm always saying Galio, it's Galio was proconsul of Achaia. And the Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. So there's three really important words here for history that we can see. First, Achaia is the bottom third of Greece. And both Corinth and Athens were in them during this time of Roman rule. We also have this word tribunal. It really is not the the tribunal here is a place. No, the Greeks had the Areopagus, which was a rock and it was a council, right? Well, the tribunal here, the real word is bima, which really means high step in Greek, okay? So high step. So really what it was is it was a place, a high step. It was a huge edifice, about 50 foot wide. Just imagine it being about as wide as, as this auditorium, and it stood eight feet tall, And this is where the Romans would give their speeches. And this is where if you had a discussion or you had some type of civil matter that needed to be decided, it would be decided at the Bema. Okay? And that's where we see Paul being dragged to. And if you stood right in front of this Bema there at Corinth today, you would be within 10 or 12 feet of where Paul actually stood. Well, the next thing was... Galio. Galio was a proconsul of Achaia. Now, why is this important? This is important because if we can narrow down when he was the proconsul, we can narrow down when Paul was there. Because the proconsul was only assumed, the, the position was only for a two year tenure. So if we can if we can decide when that was, we'll know within two years of when Paul was there. Well, guess what? A young archaeologist in 1905 found some inscriptions at Delphi. That's just north of there in Delphi. And there was an inscription that claimed that he was the proconsul. It was from uh, Caesar, and he was proconsul, and it gives us the date of July 1st, 50 A.D. So we know that Paul was either there in 50 or 51 A.D. Some say a little earlier 
than late 51 because this gentleman went back to Rome before the end of his term. So either in 50 or early 51 AD, we have Paul precisely at the Burma. All right. Our sermon is on flexibility and persistence this morning. What I'd like you to do is just take in and listen to, to me as we take in this story and we look at how persistent that Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila are and how flexible they are in their evangelism as others and try to apply that to our life today. When I say flexibility and persistence, I mean the ability to adapt to change yet remaining steadfast to your goal. The ability to adapt to change yet remaining steadfast to your goal. We have uh, Timothy and Silas finally catch up with Paul there in Corinth and he's preaching in the synagogue and they become abusive to him and they they get so bad that he can no longer preach there. So he shakes off his clothes as a way to say that I'm through with you. I'm no longer guilty of, of your blood. And I'm innocent of you not knowing about Jesus Christ. And he literally walks across the street, leaves the synagogue, walks across the street to the house of Titius Justice. And he begins to preach there for a year and a half. They run him off from one place. Hey, I'll be flexible. I'll just go across the street, start preaching again. He does, and a man named Crispus, who is the head, yes, baby doll, they should treat you better. Um, Crispus, the head of the synagogue, comes to know Christ and his whole household because Paul is flexible and he's persistent. Then later, the, the Jews get in a united attack against Paul. Now, Paul at this time has to be a little bit scared that he's going to get another beating, okay? The last time this happened, he got scourged, right? He got the snot kicked out of him. He's already been stoned once and left for dead, and now all these Jews take him and they run him up in front of uh, Galileo, Galileo, and they start to try to have him prosecuted again. But Galileo won't hear of it. And he won't hear their case. He says, hey, this is, this is, a, this is a, a thing for you Jews. And you just have words. And this is part of your religion. And he won't listen to the case. And Paul gets away, Scott, or Paul gets away without any kind of repercussion. So he goes back to the house. And he continues to stay in Corinth for some time. He's very persistent. Now, we go from Corinth across the Aegean Sea. Now we're in Ephesus. When we get to Ephesus, Paul uh, leaves uh, Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, and he starts his way back to Caesarea and Jerusalem. But Priscilla and Aquila are still in Ephesus preaching and teaching. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man. So this guy is a learned man. He's slick. He's smart. He's a great communicator. But he doesn't understand the baptism 
of Jesus Christ. He only understands the baptism of John. So Aquila and Priscilla attack him violently in the synagogue and totally embarrass him. No, that's not how it goes. Priscilla and Aquila quietly, compassionately take him to his home and give him a better understanding in the way of the Lord, right? And because they deal with him compassionately, respectfully, then he continues on and he goes to Achaia. He goes back to where Aquila and Priscilla were in Corinth and he starts arguing again on Christ's behalf that Jesus is the Messiah. It says that he proved, he was a well-learned man in Scripture, he proved that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. There's no doubt about it. Folks, I wish I could show you that Jesus Christ was without a doubt the Messiah with my knowledge of the Old Testament. That's what he did in Scripture. Uh, Why? Because two people were willing to compassionately, understandingly pull him aside and show him a better way. Does that look different than sometimes how we do things in church today? Where something is said that doesn't correspond to what's said in Scripture, and we don't always lovingly, kindly, compassionately pull that person aside and tell them, do we? I can't tell you how many times I've seen people attacked. We need to take and learn from the flexibility and the persistence of Aquila and Priscilla. Well, it's not long that Paul comes back to Ephesus, and on his way there, he meets 12 guys. And these 12 guys have probably been discipled by Apollos because they don't know anything about Jesus' baptism. Yet they're preaching and teaching and spreading the word about Jesus. So Paul pulls them aside, tells them a better way, explains to them about the baptism into Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit that you receive at that time. And these men are all baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and go on to preach the name of Christ. Paul enters the synagogue boldly for three months, and he continues to argue with the Jews there in the synagogue, trying to prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God so that they might know salvation. But they became obstinate. And then they started putting down Christians. They started maligning the way, saying ugly things about Christ. And so he no longer can can preach there in the synagogue and spread the word in the synagogue. So he goes across town to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And there he preaches God for two years. He spends more time in Ephesus than any other place. Most of it spent in this hall in this, instead of in the synagogue, in this hall, he, he's being flexible. He'll go anywhere to preach Jesus, even into a public hall where they're probably preaching a lot of different things and talking about a lot of different philosophy. And he's willing to go there and spread the word. But what I want you to see above this scripture is that he did it for three years. Now, I've got to tell you, that's incredible 
to me. And it's incredible because he's willing to deal with these people for three, not three years, three months. And I got to tell you, what I've witnessed in my life is when I come to people and they don't agree with what we're saying, if their theology doesn't match our theology, we're good to carry on maybe a 15-minute conversation, right? Well, if I, you're not going to believe like I believe, huh, and then run off. And if you're really good, well, the debate might continue on for an hour or two hours. If you're really lucky and it's a meaningful conversation when we have disagreements about doctrine, it might go on for three or four hours or maybe even a day. I want you to see what Paul is doing here. He's willing to spend three months talking with these people. Folks, do you have a disagreement, a theological disagreement? I would say that you probably need to spend about three months with them in meaning, meaningful discussion before you give up on them. That's the example that I see here. And then we go down farther, verse 11. He says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left. He's willing to be He's willing to be flexible. Paul's willing to be flexible. Paul's never seen this before. Paul's never seen handkerchiefs and aprons being used to cure people. And if he was in the church today, you know what I think we would say? We're not going to do that. We've never seen that before. We never tried that before. I've been in church all my life and we ain't never tried that. Folks, I've been in business meetings where people wanted to do good things, wanted to help people and heal people and carry out the work of the Lord. And somebody would go, we've never done that before. And just squish it. Just stop it. Folks, i got to tell you, I really don't want to be in the house building business. But if a hurricane comes or a tornado comes and wipes out people's homes, I'm going to get into the home building practice so I might influence some people to come to Christ, right? I don't really want to be in the food distribution and the little secondhand shop sales. I don't. But can I tell you, that that has become a way for Christians through secondhand shops and food distribution and discount stores to clothe and feed the poor and still give them dignity. And that's a good thing. Do I want to have to branch out into all those things? No, I'd rather sit in my office at my comfy desk in my comfy chair with my beautiful secretary I can say that because she's my wife, if you don't know. You always get, I love, you know, it would be at a men's uh, preacher's meeting, and I'll say, you know, something about spending the night with my secretary, and they'll go ballistic, and then I tell them, that's my wife. <laughs> you see, I really, it would be more comfortable to stay there and, and, and just study and stay in my desk and stay in my chair, in my air conditioning, and in the winter, in my heating, with, with the 
with the colas that are just down the hall and the coffee maker that is just outside the door. But I need to be flexible. And I need to be persistent. And I need to be willing to do whatever it takes to reach the lost. And sometimes that looks different than the ordinary things that we do. i got to ask you, are we flexible? Are we persistent people this morning? One of my missionary heroes is this gentleman right here, Isaac Day. Can you, can you point out, do you have any idea who Isaac the missionary is? He's been working for the Lord for over 20 years. He's the guy in the back. Now, this is a mission team going somewhere his song leaders are in the front, and he's the preacher in the back. He's willing to do whatever it takes. And do you notice they're taking food along, too? They never know how long they'll be out. When I first met Isaac Day, he was in the Gambia, and he was building a two-story school. And I'm thinking, why are you building a school, Isaac? We're, we're trying to convert people. And he said, let me tell you my dream about this school. He said, I can't really, I can't get into the Islamic culture. I, I can't break in there. They won't let me in there. But their kids are dying to have an education. And so I'm going to build this school. And I'm going to make it a Christian school. And it's going to be known as a Christian school. And we're going to, we're going to teach mathematics and English and, and all the subjects. But we're also going to teach about the love of Christ. Last time that I had anything to do with that school, they had over 100 students. This is his box truck. He calls it right on the side. It says, The Gospel Chariot. Remember that song? He drives this box truck around from place to place trying to convince people to take Bible, world Bible school classes, to get them involved in the Word. And then at night he does this, this unusual thing. He pulls the truck up, throws a sheet across one side of the truck, takes out portable speakers, puts them on either side of it, takes a projector, puts it on the ground, puts a computer beside it, starts up the generator to power all of it, and then shows shows like the passion of the Christ and shares Christ's story with people who might not ever have a chance to know and see a motion picture they may not ever have a chance to see and then tell them about Christ. He's persistent and flexible. A few years ago, I believe this is in 2010, he comes to the understanding that missionaries need to be self-supportive, but Africa is really poor. So what he decides to do is build another school, but this time he's building a Bible school for missionaries and, as it says on the side of the building, an agricultural institute. So these missionaries can be self-sustaining. So you go to class most of your day to take Bible courses, and then you go outside and you take gardening. Or you learn how to raise protein. Okay? I ain't never seen that before. But it's working. 
And he's changing lives and he's putting missionaries on the ground. Can I tell you, he's probably started more churches than people I've baptized because he's willing to be flexible and he is persistent. Just in Gambia alone, he'd been there about five years by the time that I was there with him. And in five years, he had about four churches in Gambia. They're still there. Now he's in Liberia. Here he is getting ready to go to church with his wife. Persistent, flexible. Truth is, he'll do anything to further the kingdom of God. Will you? Will you do anything? To further the kingdom of God? Will you be flexible and persistent like Paul? Will you keep on keeping on? When it comes time to do something different that you've never done before and you're a little uncomfortable, will you be flexible? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Lord, if there's someone here today thinking about changing their life for you, give them the courage to say something to the elders, to come to the front, to confess your name, put you on in baptism, and live a faithful life to you. Lord, we pray for everyone here that they might have a, 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 burning, a burning desire to be persistent for people to know you, to be flexible, be willing to do anything and everything it takes to grow your church. Thank you so much for your examples to us, your son. We pray, Lord, that everyone here might know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.